Thank you, Dan, and choir and instrumentalists for our lovely worship today. We continue our sermon series from the minor prophet Amos, called Minor not because Amos is unimportant, but because of the brevity of these prophetic books at the end of your Old Testament. We'll be looking at a section in chapter 4 and then a section in chapter 5. So if you'd turn to Amos chapter 4 in verses 4 and 5, we'll look at those in in just a moment. Judgment on religious hypocrisy. Seminary professor said that he had a student who for eight years taught at a school in Nashville, Tennessee for children with hearing disorders. Now, they didn't have a problem physically with their hearing. It's just they really didn't make contact with what was being said. They, they couldn't understand or follow the context of of conversation. After eight years of trying to help these children, the student said to his seminary professor, I just, I just couldn't take it anymore. I went to work crying in the morning thinking about those kids, and I left work in the evening crying thinking about those kids. He said, for example, once on the playground, I went up to a little girl her name was Heather, and I squared her shoulders up to me. It, we'd just gotten back from Thanksgiving weekend, and I said to her, holding her shoulders, looking her eye to eye, Heather, what did you eat for Thanksgiving? You know what Heather said? She said, my shoes are red. I just couldn't take it anymore. What did you eat for Thanksgiving? My shoes are red. Well, while he was telling the professor about that school in Nashville, Tennessee, the professor said, I didn't have the heart to tell the seminarian that he was going to have experiences exactly like that in church when he went to work in church. The professor said, for example, I was in Dallas, and it was a wonderful worship worship service. The anthems were beautiful. The hymns were carefully selected to go with the theme of the sermon. Even the prayer fit in so beautifully. Everything was just right. I felt myself in the presence of God. I was standing there after the benediction. I was immobilized by the power of that worship service and the presence of God. I didn't want to move. I didn't want to utter a word. I just wanted to be there. And the man in the pew in front of me turned the minute the amen was given on the benediction and said, Hey, do you think Tom Landry's going to coach the Cowboys for another year? Do you know what he said to me? Said the professor. He said, My shoes are red. My shoes are red. The ancient Israelites were focusing on red shoes, they were focusing entirely on the wrong thing when it came to worship. They were focusing on ritual and not righteousness. They were focused on giving only their offerings. They were good at that, but they weren't giving their hearts. They focused on busyness rather than being good to the poor in their community. Eugene Peterson said, as a pastor, I don't like being viewed as insignificant or the church being unimportant. 
I bristle when a high-energy executive in the congregation leaves the place of worship with the attitude and comment, this was wonderful, Pastor, but now we got to get back to the real world, don't we? Wait a minute, says Eugene, isn't worship, isn't this the most real world? world revealed as God's, a world believed to be invaded by God's grace, a world that is ordered around the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The executive's comment brings the church up short. He isn't taking any of this very seriously, is he? Worshiping is marginal to making money, and prayer is marginal to the bottom line, and Christian salvation story is simply one brand preference to him. How important is our worship? Look at Amos chapter 4 and verse 4 and 5. Now, God is being sarcastic in the passage. Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply your transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Bring your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings and make them known. For you love to do so, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord God. Now, God's being sarcastic. And he captures this sarcasm in a priestly call to worship. The priestly call directed the worshiper to come to the house of worship to seek God and to find the right way to do life. Jeroboam I, you remember, had erected calves for worship at Bethel and Dan so that the northern tribes would not travel south to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. He didn't want them getting interested in that anymore. And by the time his son, by the time Amos comes along, by the time Jeroboam first son, Jeroboam II, is on the throne, these are very popular places to worship. And Amos, speaking on behalf of God, sarcastically says, come on to Bethel and sin. Come on to Gilgal and sin some more and bring those sacrifices. Bring those tithes. Bring those offerings with you when you come. Now, the law prescribed the offerings. And a special tithe, this was a special tithe to be taken up every three years for those in charge of the worship, the Levites. And notice what he says. He doesn't sing, bring that special offering, that tithe for the Levites every three years. He says, you bring it every three days. You come on, bring it on, he's saying sarcastically. The thank offering involved the bringing of leaven and unleavened bread, and the free will offering was voluntary as an expression more generally of gratitude. Both the free will offering and the thank offering were peace offerings in which the worship shared a sacred meal. Now, notice it's not every three years. He's being sarcastic. You bring them every three days. Someone in my household saw my Bible open to Amos 4 yesterday morning, and they read, bring the tithes every three days. And they said, that's a little often for me, don't you think? They didn't know God was being sarcastic there. I said, you'll be relieved to know this tithe was every three years, not every three days. 
But notice they didn't mind bringing the big gifts. And notice what they like to do, the end of verse 5. They like to make their gifts known. Bring them sin. Bring some more money. Let everybody know about it, God's saying. Of course, what we know from studying Amos is that they were making that money that they were tithing and making offerings of from the backs of the poor. They were cheating on the scales. They were selling the poor out for the price of a pair of sandals. They were perverting justice, not allowing them to come to the gate to have a just hearing. Oh, they had made plenty of money, but they had made the money off the backs of the poor. Their offerings were cheated money from those who had nothing. Sometimes God rejects our worship. Turn over a chapter to chapter 5, verse 21. 5, 21. Listen to these words of rejection, 21 through 24. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos begins to list out the elements of worship in ancient Israel, and he says, one by one, God says, I don't like it, I won't take it, I reject it. Among the functions of the cultic priest in ancient Israel was to declare the acceptance by God of the worship of the ancient Israelites, and God doesn't seem to be accepting anything here. God was not taking delight in their sacrifices. God was rejecting their ritual. Amos pulls no punches, verse 21. Listen to the harsh language. I hate, God says. I reject, God says. I hate your festivals. I don't like your Passovers. I will not accept your harvest, the festival of weeks. I will not take the tabernacles, the end gathering. Those were the three around which ancient Israel, well, they really molded their lives around those festivals. I won't take any of it. I do not delight in your solemn assemblies. A little translation of that is, I do not like the smell of your solemn assemblies. You know, a sacrifice was something that God breathed into his nostrils. We start the Bible out with a story where God accepts one offering of one brother and rejects the offering of the other brother. And the way I've imagined that scene is the smoke goes up in the nostrils of God for the sacrifice that is accepted. And, well, the sacrifice that is rejected, the smoke just hovers around the ground. God says, I will not breathe in and enjoy your gift of sacrifice. I am holding my nose when you worship. It stinks to me. I will not breathe it in. Look at verse 22. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Look at this. I will not even look at what's going on here. The three sacrifices mentioned here 
are those of the first of the five mentioned in the Levitical offerings. The burnt offering was an offering in which the entirety of the animal was consumed. And then the grain offering was various offerings that one would bring to God as a gift of gratitude. And fellowship offerings were part of the animal was consumed and part of the animal was eaten by the worshiper. So it was a communal meal, a meal of communion with God, if you will. And God says, I won't have regard for any of these things, I will not accept them. God is holding his nose, and now, verse 22, God is shutting his eyes. I will not look at them. You notice that? I hold my nose. I cover my eyes when you worship. Look at verse 23. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I'll not even listen to the sound of your harps. So I'm going to hold my nose, God says. I'm going to cover my eyes, and now I'm going to cover my ears. I will not listen to the sound of your worship. Here's God with shut nostrils, closed eyes, and stopped up ears saying, I will have nothing of it. It reminds us of another minor prophet, Malachi, chapter 1, verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Malachi, like Amos says, there's times when God wishes someone would just lock the door and stop all the folks from coming in because they come in without clean hands, and pure hearts. Well, I want us to look at some reasons why God rejected their worship and some reasons that God might reject our worship. First of all, God rejects our worship when we focus on ritual rather than righteousness. God rejects worship when we focus on ritual rather than righteousness. An oddity of our time is that churches are spitting up over what have been termed worship wars, about whether we sing out of a hymn book or words on a screen, and, well, whether a church will be contemporary or traditional, and, well, you get the idea of what's going on. When you look at a passage like this, however, I think perhaps we're asking the wrong question, are we not? It isn't about the style of the music. Every culture, every people, every generation will vary always and forever. The question is about the theology of the worship at hand. He does not say, I reject your worship because you're not singing to the right beat or the right rhythm or the right meter. No, what he says is, I reject your worship because of your heart. That's the problem. God hears the music completely differently than we do. A soloist might sing, and she might hit every note perfectly, and it might be powerful, but if she does not sing with clean hands and a pure heart, by the time that song reaches heaven, God says, it is noise to me. Another soloist might sing, and she might be a little off here and there, and we might not think it's as good, but by the time it reaches heaven, it is glorious to God. They were focusing on ritual and not righteousness. The real question for us to ask this morning is not what tune do we sing, 
but rather are our our hearts in tune with God when we do sing. Here's a, a second reason God might reject our worship. When we've treated others unfairly all week long, when we treat others unfairly all week long, the problem was they were giving God rivers of religiosity when God wanted rivers of righteousness and justice. Look at verse 24. Let the justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. These folk in ancient Israel have been cheating each other all week long. They have been abusing the poor and the needy. They have been charging for goods and services they had not provided. They had doubled their prices when circumstances would allow. You see, the ethics of worship is not something that God expects out of the few who might gather in his house on that day, but rather it is without reservation or qualification that God expects righteousness from those who worship him. There is nothing more embarrassing to the church when one of its members conducts himself in such a way that his ethics in the business community are questionable, and then folks discover he's a member of this church or that church, and, well, you embarrass your God, you embarrass your church. You see, our lives at the classroom and the community, on the coaching field, in the bank, and in the hospital, in the business market, must be congruent with our worship on Sunday. And it was not so for ancient Israel. They were cheating all week long and then bringing the tithes to God. There's a third reason God rejected their worship and might reject our worship. God rejects our worship when our worship focuses on ourselves rather than upon God. God rejects our worship when our worship focuses upon ourselves rather than than upon God. Ancient Israel, when she gathered to worship, was not focused on Yahweh, not about focusing and worshiping God in spirit and in truth. They were focused on themselves. We must move from our experience of God to the God of our experience, but ultimately to God's experience of us. Now think about that. We must move our minds away from our experience of God to the God of our experience, then ultimately to God's experience of us. Walter Wink said it best when he says, for you to gather here this morning is for you to remember who owns the house, and it is not we who own the room. For us to gather this morning is for us to remember who owns the house. It is God who owns the house. It is not we ourselves. God knows when we gather to worship thinking about ourselves, thinking about other things, we're not focused on Him. God says, stop focusing on yourselves. What you're doing with your offerings and focus on me. I need all of your heart when you come to my house to worship. C.S. Lewis used to use an analogy that makes the point well. He says, suppose I were to read Shakespeare's love sonnet, shall I compare thee to a summer's day to my dog Jake? 
He said, now that would probably be a waste of time to read Shakespeare to my dog, Jake. He says, there's two problems with that. He said, first of all, Jake can't hear, and so he wouldn't hear it anyway. And, And second of all, Jake has never shown any appreciation for the famed playwrights. That's the second. That's the second problem at hand. As I would read Shakespeare's masterpiece, the love sonnet to Jake, the whole time I was reading from the table, he would just be thinking about, is he going to drop a crumb? Is he going to drop a crumb? Is he going to drop a crumb? He wouldn't think anything about the masterful writing of Shakespeare. He just wouldn't do it. And then he would shake and rattle his collar and then lay down and fall asleep while I read Shakespeare. He said, now, what if, on the other hand, I started reading the love sonic from Shakespeare, and all of a sudden, old Jake's ears perked up. He looked really, really interested, and he tilted his head as if he were taking in the words and appreciating the masterful craft of a wordsmith. What if he just began to bark a little bit, giving amens and approval to the beautiful Shakespeare's writing? Well, that would be nice, but not likely, would it? But the question in Lewis's analogy is this. Would Shakespeare's sonnet be any better because Jake appreciated it? Not one bit. Would Shakespeare's sonnet be any less beautiful because Jake could only think about crumbs from the table? Not a bit. When we gather in this room to hear the Word of God and to worship the God of the Word, we don't do anything to make God better, not one thing. And God is no worse when we do not think of Him rightly. It is we ourselves that are cheated when we bring our minds about ourselves when we enter this sacred space. The Bible is full of worship. From the singing of the Psalter to the Acts of the Apostles, the history book of the New Testament where the church gathers and worships to John's apocalypse at the end where we hear, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. There is scene after scene of worship. And in Scripture, every time we worship, the worship is about God himself. And not us. We will one day join the elders and the 10,000 angels, and we will for eternity say, Worthy, worthy, worthy. The whole earth is full of His glory. In fact, What worship is about it is is that moment, that time when you and I can stop thinking about ourselves and our problems and our griefs, and we can think about how wonderful and big and large and powerful God is. Good worship is self-effacing. It does not call attention to itself. When our worship becomes self-conscious, we lose the God consciousness 
of why we are here. So if we come today worried about a myriad of things, things that are going to happen this afternoon or next week, if we come with a scorecard grading the sermon or the song, we have missed the purpose of being here. Finally, God did reject worship and might reject worship if we refuse to realize that one day we will be judged for both our worship and our lives Verse 18, above in chapter 5, we have that passage about the day of the Lord where you see a lion and you run from the lion, you turn the corner and there's the bear. You get home, you slam the door, you put your hand against the wall and there's the serpent. Ancient Israel thought the, the great and powerful day of the Lord would be awful for her enemies, but great for her. And Amos is saying, I don't know why you're so excited about the day of the Lord, why you keep talking about the day of the Lord, the way you're living your lives. That's not going to be a good day for you. Let me picture it for you. It's a lion, a bear, and a snake all together, and you run, but you cannot flee. Well, what we realize when we worship is that our self-evaluation is worthless. What I think about myself is worthless. In fact, what you think about me is worthless. What you think about yourself is worthless, and what I think about you is equally worthless. All that matters, says Amos, about our worship, our lives, is the evaluation of the Almighty. Does he accept our worship? Does he reject our worship? How do we come this morning? Do we come with clean hands and a pure heart? Do we come with broken spirits? Do we come knowing that we need the grace of a crucified Christ? Do we come to worship? I can't imagine coming to church on Sunday and just going to Bible study and missing worship. Bible study is important, but it's not worship. They're, they're two different things, you see. For it is only in worship that we lose ourselves in the majesty, the power, and the presence of God. One pastor remembers a young woman. She was about 28 years old. She went to St. Mark's Church in Atlanta on the way out from church, she said to the pastor, this is the first time I've ever been to worship. This is the first, never, never been to worship before. Really? That's kind of hard to find, isn't it? I mean, surely there's an Easter or a Christmas or a baby dedication or something you went to somewhere along the line. Really? You're 28 years old, and this was the first time you had ever entered a house of worship. Well, I mean, it's hard to get that kind of perspective, isn't it? What was it like to you, asked the pastor, sincerely curious about what she experienced. Kind of scary, she said. Really? You thought worship was scary? Yeah. Seems scary. Well, why, why, why was worship scary to you today? Because it just all seemed so important. And I don't do important things very often. It scared me. It scared me.
Let's pray. Oh God, forgive us for entering the room focused on ourselves. Forgive us for entering your room with dirty hands and impure hearts. We bring all of our sins and our unworthiness to worship you to the cross of Jesus. We ask you to see us as you look only through the cross. Father, we realize that we're the schnauzer listening to Shakespeare and that your word is so far above us and so powerful. And we miss it. Oh God, accept our worship today. We confess our faults. We come imperfect. And we look to your grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.